Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies, and today's a real pleasure for me. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Tammy Biddle, uh, the reason I'm here at the U.S. Army War College, and a person I never go anywhere in the world at any conference, any academic event, anywhere, uh, where someone doesn't say to me, please give my best to Tammy Biddle. So, Tammy, it's great to have you here. It's great to finally get you on this podcast after many, many near misses. Thank you, Mike. I'm so pleased to be here, and thank you for those lovely, kind words. Uh, it's such a delight to have you here at the Army War College. You've been such a great addition to us and to this institution. I think in many ways you've come to define it over the past 10 years. So it's just a joy to be here. Well, great. This is fantastic because now that, Tammy, you've retired, we're not in the building together. We don't have as many of these conversations. So this is just a fantastic chance to sit down and talk. Um, I want to begin by asking you, if you would, just a, a little bit. I know about your new project, but I know our listeners don't. Um, talk a little bit about what you're doing. It's an ambitious project. It's one that I'm, I, I think probably is, is one that may even be better off doing in retirement than doing while trying to deal with all the other responsibilities you, you had here at the Army War College. So tell us a little bit about what you've tackled as a retirement writing project. Okay, sure. I'm writing a book called Taking Command, the United States at War. 1941 to 1945. And it is a big topic and it has been hard for me to, it was hard for me to do it while I was working full-time at the Army War College and also trying to do a full-time teaching schedule and lots of administrative work and leadership for TWS. That's one of our core courses. Um, so it's been a real joy to finally have time post-retirement. When I say retirement, it's just post retirement from the Army. Nothing else in my world seems to be <laughs> calmer. But anyway, uh, I do have this more sustained time. And that's, as you know, sustained time is really necessary for any kind of long, complicated project. So I have the luxury of that, and I'm trying to take full advantage of it. Uh, I still have a busy life in many other ways. I'm, I'm involved in lots of other activities. But this book is my project, and it's my focal point. So a big project like this one covering the American experience of war, 1941 to 45, it's like what they say about a great movie, like the, the, the project might be judged by what's left on the cutting room floor. So how do you decide what you want to include and what do you dare to omit? How do you think about that process before you begin writing? Yeah, I think, Mike, that every author comes to a project with a unique set of questions. And they come with their own experience, their own uh, ideas that they've developed over time as a result of their, their own life experience. I think PME, the professional military education system, has really influenced the way I think. I think about strategy all the time. I imagine that you probably yeah, do of course, as well. Everything from raising the dog to to teaching it just yeah, the models it, are are beaten into your head. Yeah, it in it we gain it through osmosis. It infuses us. It takes over the way that we think. So I'm really interested in connections and the ways that 
states use their resources to fight wars? How do they make big decisions? How do they come up with the bureaucratic structures? How do they decide uh, who to keep home on the war front to work uh, in industry and who to send to the war front? How do they decide between air power and land power and sea power? So all of these big questions uh, are informing the way I come at this this task. And I'm amazed, too, as I look at it, just how difficult it was. I think there's a tendency for us to look back on the Second World War and think, oh, gosh, somehow we were all just enlightened and we did it so well. And we, we have sort of rose-colored glasses yeah, on about yeah. World War II. But as I look at it, I find challenges and difficulties and, and problems everywhere. And I'm really interested in seeing how people overcame those. Um, it took courage. It took persistence. It took patience. It took unbelievable determination to uh, work through every challenge that was thrown at the American people. And I think my the biggest part of, I think that the biggest question for me is, how was it all done so quickly? How did we accomplish so much in really three and a half to four years? Um, which I find stunning. Uh, the amount of work that went into it, the, the number of decisions that were taken, the ability to move things around the world to the Pacific theater, it's staggering to me and it's amazing. And for me, it's sort of like a thriller in lots of ways. I, everything is important. Everything is kind of hanging on contingencies. Everything is difficult. There are setbacks everywhere, and yet we keep going and we keep pushing. And finally, we come to victory in both theaters. And I just want to realize what was the human effort involved? What was the drama? Uh, who were the drivers? How did we do this in such a short time? And how did it change us as a nation and as a people? So now that you've got those central questions and you know what you want to do, it's not a book necessarily about tactics or operations or exclusively the relationship with the British or anything like that. Now that you've got this sort of central set of questions, are you as a writer thinking anything that's interesting or would be really cool to have in the book but doesn't fit these questions, I'm just going to push it to the side and ignore it? Or are you trying to find ways to sort of weave and fold the really interesting things in? How are you handling that problem? I wish I were disciplined enough to say I'm just going to I'm going to have a this is my set of questions nothing else is going to to be relevant. What I find too often is that so many things are relevant to those questions. They're big expansive questions and so I have to be fairly flexible about what comes in and what what stays out. Um honestly, I I kind of feel my way along and I take it in stages. I pick up a piece of it. Of course, you know, I think to take on any project like this, especially when there's so many brilliant books out there about the Second World War, it's quite daunting. You have to have a certain amount of courage mm -hmm. um, and maybe a, a tiny bit of arrogance. Maybe that's not the right word. Maybe what chutzpah is probably oh, the, right the perfect word. word. I chutzpah think that's is the, the perfect, perfect word. word. Yeah. I think you need a little bit of chutzpah. And naturally, I'm very shy, and I'm reserved, and I'm a little bit anxious. So this this project terrifies me a little bit. So I have to break it down into pieces. That's and good. I, I think terror is actually not a bad terror thing. Terror is not right? a it's bad thing. It's actually not a bad motivator. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good motivator. Um, yeah, this is the prospect of being hanged in the morning does focus the mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I can't get up in the morning thinking, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in the middle of this giant project that, that is about everything. 
I have to get up in the morning thinking, I've got a discrete goal for today. I'm going to look at this issue and I'm going to find the best sources that I can on it. Then I'm going to, when I'm ready, I'm going to write a piece of narrative. And I know in the future I'm going to edit that narrative. It may stay, it may go. Uh, it may form the basis of some other article that I write later because uh, it's so interesting but not relevant to this book. Um, but I, I am fairly flexible about being open-minded and letting things come to me. That is what really worked for me with rhetoric and reality. And so obviously, if you have a model that works fairly well, you want to follow it again. Um, so let, let me pick up yeah. on something that you just said about that writing process. So you you start with saying, today, I want to I want to deal with the, the, the small, relatively contained question of X, and I'm going to work on that while I'm doing this. Right. So is your writing process to say, I think I'm familiar enough with X to go and start writing that? Or do you say, I've already written on these topics before. In other words, do you do it in a sort of chronological fashion or do you say, I think I finally understand this part of what I think is going to be chapter seven and that's what I want to tackle? Yeah. I, as a historian, Mike, I really hold on to chronology as an organizing principle and yeah. I've tried sometimes to peel myself away from it, but I always come back to it. Mm. So chronology is always sort of an organizing factor for me in a way that I, I build sort of the spine of a narrative. Um, but I also take things in stages, and I, I also feel that if I'm working on, uh, let's say I, I want to work on the draft, the, er the, the draft in the early part of the, the war, I'll go first usually to official histories uh, because they give me such a strong sense of, of getting oriented in space and time mm -hmm. and then figure out, okay, what's really interesting here? What And what do I need to pull out of this for a general reader that's going to be both interesting and really informative, that's going to let me lay the groundwork or the foundation so that I'm really well informed and then can add levels of detail and excitement and color. Uh, so I kind of want to do the base coat first, and then I want to go in and fill in interesting details. So wh where is this book going to start? When you talk about periodization, I mean, all historians deal with this, right? Yeah. The, the problem the United States faces in World War II obviously doesn't begin on December 7th, 1941. How far back this is a problem all of us historians face. How how that infinite regression we call I it, know. right? I mean, we where where do you plan to start this book, and what what in your mind is the event that really starts to create this massive problem the United States is going to face? Well, entering the war creates the massive problem of having to do so many things at once. But of course, um, we had started. Uh, of course, building aircraft sh shortly after Munich. FDR was very interested in doing that to assist the Allies. He wanted us and hoped that we might be able to just be the arsenal of mm -hmm. democracy and not actually have to fight ourselves, although I think he suspected in the back of his mind that we would end up in the war at one point or another. So we were underway in 1940 in a, in a slow way, and then in 1941, we were trying to decide how much production to put into consumer goods and how much into defense, how much into uh, general industry and how much into building weapons. Those were hard choices. When war comes in December of 1941, 
a lot of things become much clearer and a lot of a lot of decisions hard decisions have to be made very quickly so i i want to lead in with a little bit about those first years and getting ready and gearing up but then it's really sort of December 7th, and then Churchill is arriving in Washington to try to get his hand into the strategy process as quickly as possible. Americans have to build the bureaucracy of war, the administrative apparatus for war. They have to start building weapons. They have to raise armies they and navies. They literally have to build the headquarters. They have to build the Pentagon. They have to build the Pentagon. As, yeah. a, as a building to run this out of. Exactly. So there's so much to do at once. And it really takes really all of 1942 to get this sorted out. We start to gain momentum, but by the end of 42 and into 43, we've got momentum and we're starting to build the kind of arsenal we want to have. So are you periodizing this by calendar year or do you have a different kind of periodization in mind? Do you, do you, in other words, how are you thinking about organizing chapters, your start and stop points? I am thinking about doing it by calendar year, but of course the war doesn't fit neatly into right. calendar right. years. So the writer has a big challenge there. You really have to figure out you know, when you're going to run a narrative forward, when you're going to have to do a flashback. And I will be using flashback a lot of the time because I, I don't really want to start. I, you're right, infinite regression. I could go all the way to fir the First World War easily right. and have been tempted to do that. And in fact, we'll be pulling a few things out of the First World War experience to show how they are paralleled in the Second World War. But I have to, to start somewhere. So it's really going to, the, the focus is going to be 42 into 43, and then I'm really going to talk about the tremendous challenge of 44 and 45. As, as you know, I've, I've written a little bit about this, but I find this period so fascinating where we go from really the high of basically the liberation of Paris to the low of the Battle of the Bulge mm. in the course of a, a very short Four span months, of time. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it's this roller coaster yeah. ride. I guess I suppose I'm thinking, you know, I could see an historian doing, I'm certainly not recommending that you do this, yeah. but I could see an historian saying, we start at the Spanish-American War when the United States first becomes a Pacific power, or we start with kind of America's ambivalent feelings about Europe. I mean, you oh, could yeah. do a lot, but again, it's that question of what doesn't get included into the book that is, I think, a major challenge for an historian. I mean, we we have to make this decision. Like, we, we could go all the way back to the founding of the Republic if we wanted to, but I'm going to start at this point. Exactly, exactly. And I am so susceptible to that. In fact, my husband will tell you that basically I was the, the book I was starting to write when I started my dissertation was early nuclear history. I was going to write what became Ed Kaplan's book, uh -huh. <laughs> his first book. Um, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I really need to understand the Air Force in order to understand early nuclear history. So then I thought, well, I have to understand the Air Force in World War World War II. Right. And then I thought, oh, but I have to understand the Air Force in the interwar years. And I can't understand the Air Force in the interwar years if I don't understand the Air Force in the First World War. So I end up writing rhetoric and reality. And of course, I never get to right, what was course. supposed to be the original topic, which was early nuclear strategy. Um, maybe I'll get to that topic one day. Yeah, I don't think people realize what a, what a challenge this can be for historians. And I know it's one of the first things you or I do when we pick up a book is to look at how an historian 
periodizes? What, what does he or she think is critical as breakpoints, as start points, as endpoints? These are really fundamental questions when you're, you use the analogy of, of, of a coat of paint. I mean, this is, this is how you frame the wall even before yes. you think to paint it. You yes. have to think about how big is that wall going to be? I mean, these are critical choices that you have to make as a writer. They really are. And they're difficult choices. And, and the thing is, you might change as you go through and realize that this draft didn't quite work and you're going to have to change it so that in, an, in a different draft, in a new draft, you're going to have to reperiodize or you're going to have to do another flashback that allows you to fill in some of the background to take the reader where the reader needs to go. I'm very sensitive to what a reader needs to understand to, in order to really make sense of a moment in time. And that's the key, isn't it? I mean, it I, really I remember some, an editor telling me that a reader doesn't need to know everything that you know. You, you, yeah. you the writer, have to be that filter. So exactly. when I do French history of World War One or World War Two. In my mind, I think this could go back to the revolution yes. easily. Yes. The, but you can't do that because no. the readers that that's it's too much. It's too big a wall to paint on in effect. Yes. I'm actually now looking hard at the way that writers come into a book and how they locate and orient the reader right at the beginning. Um, because I want to figure out how that's done really well. Right. It's something that when we're reading, we just sort of follow along and we're led by the hand and taken exactly. by a good writer and we're not even thinking about how yeah, this exactly. is being done. But for the writer, these are huge choices and they are very difficult choices. How big a wall do you want to show your reader? How, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm liking this analogy more, this metaphor more and more. Uh, how big a wall do you want your reader to have to oh, interact with? Exactly. It's like you know, I, I, either weaving a very intricate tapestry or mm -hmm. painting an elaborate mural on a wall or I don't know, knitting a very elaborate sweater with intricate patterns and you've got to decide which stitch is next. Um, but all of these choices are, are really, really much more difficult for writers than I think readers ever quite understand. But I think what we do, and I edit a lot. I mean, I, I, I write, what I do is iteratively, I, I can't do all my research and then do all my writing. I go back and forth. I toggle back and forth all the time. Once I've gotten to a point where I think I've got a lot of good material, I turn it into prose. And then I go back and I re-edit it. And in fact, when I start the next day's work, I usually start by editing what I did oh, the day before. Because it's an, a lovely way to ease in to, you know, it's not a blank page. You're, you're editing something and then you, you get into fourth and fifth gear and you're up and running. It's also a good way of saying, what was I trying to convey with that stupid sentence? Right, right, <laughs> right exactly. And you know, the next morning after you slept on it, you, you don't think you, you were quite so brilliant as you were last night exactly. when you were writing that and sentence. It also matters, I think, who you think your audience is going to be. And I think yes. you and I have discussed this. Sometimes you're writing for a relatively small group of people who study what you study. Yes. This book, I'm guessing you're trying to reach a much wider audience, right? We, we can reveal who the press is. It's, it's Oxford it's University, Oxford Press, University which, press but it's, which does books that, that appeal to large audiences. Yeah, this is on the trade press side. Right. So I'm learning how to write a trade press book, and that's new to me. Um, I'm sure you've gone through this process too. Yeah, absolutely. The first book's... The, the first, all the first writing that I did was very academic. Mm -hmm. I don't now need to do the theory chapter. I don't need long historiography, uh, long bibliographical essays. All that 
you know, has to go by the wayside, but I'm still trained that way. And I still need to incorporate that because scholars will be reading our work and they'll be looking at it through the lens of, of an academic scholar. I think it's a harder balance than people appreciate, certainly that I appreciated when I began. You, you want to still show your fellow historians, yes. hey, I know how to do this yes, the right way. Absolutely. But at the same time, the paint that you're putting on the wall has to be clear enough to somebody that they can say, okay, I understand the picture that you're painting. And it's it's not straightforward. No, it isn't. And I, I have to hold people in my mind. I have a couple of readers that I think, okay, I'm writing for John. I'm writing for Phil. I'm writing for my mother at some level. Um, you know, it, and, and what do they need to know right. to understand the story? And what are they going to find really interesting and exciting that's going to want them to keep reading further, which is another thing that maybe as an academic writer, you don't always have to pay attention to quite so much. But you that's have right. to tell a story in a way that's really engaging and that makes readers want to stay with it and want to, to keep going. Um, I, but I, I think I'm finding that a little bit easier than I thought when I first started because I find this story so compelling. As I said to you, I, I feel it's like a thriller. And I'm trying to write it from the perspective of someone who doesn't know how it comes out. That's hard Which of too. course they didn't know. They didn't know. They were they were going forward in time. They did not know what was going to come next. And I want to absorb as much of that as I can. Of course, I realize I'm I'm a scholar writing 80 years after the fact. And I will bring that to the narrative inevitably. I can't avoid it. But I want to try as much as possible to write as if I were living through it, living at the time. I think James McPherson does that really well in Absolutely. Battle Cry of Freedom. It's such a brilliant example of how to write that way and to keep the reader really engaged and, and kind of on the edge of his or her seat. John le Carre said there has to be something at stake on every page. Yeah. And I find that with academic writing, that's very hard to do. It's very, very hard uh, to do. With, with narrative writing, it's a little bit easier, though still obviously an enormous challenge. It's, but and, and for a book like the one you're doing, there's something at stake in every single decision that these people are making. Absolutely. And another way, of course, to keep that narrative going is to bring interesting people into the discussion. And I know yes, there's no shortage yes. of interesting people in this time period, but is there a person maybe you've been focusing on that maybe is less well-known that you want to kind of walk your reader through his or her eyes as they're moving through? Or are you comfortable sticking with the known individuals, the Marshalls, the Pattons, the Roosevelts, the Eleanor Roosevelts, the, these folks that your readers are going to immediately have an association in their mind's eye with? Sure. I'm so glad you asked that question, Mike, because I really do want to bring some new people to the forefront. The great superpower of the historian is to bring people back from the dead. Absolutely. And I want to do that. There's some people I've found who are so fascinating, and they, they aren't known to general readers. Of course, I'm going to talk about FDR and Churchill and, and Patton and, and Who's Marshall. Who's your favorite less-known one to talk about? Who's the oh, one that, that you, you really want to bring to readers' I really attention? want to bring Dorothy Thompson, yeah. Anne O'Hare McCormick, uh, Walter Lippmann, Hanson Baldwin. Kind of blows my Dorothy mind. Dorothy Thompson's and, a major feature in, in the book I'm working on right she, now. Yeah, her papers are at Syracuse, and she was just incredibly insightful to understand what was happening, I think, before a lot of people oh, knew. So maybe, maybe explain is... a little bit of who she was and why you – maybe just a minute or two on, on why Dorothy Thompson yeah, for you. Yeah, she's, she's a writer of extraordinary ability and piercing clarity, and she's such a 
fighter against fascism. First American writer kicked out of Germany, 1933. Yes, she <laughs> understands one. exactly what fascism is about and how it's being used. And she has this very modern sense of, of the use of information to manipulate human beings. She sees into that so clearly. And I'm just astonished to go back and read her her books and her writing to see just how clear that vision is. Boy, it's so funny to hear you say that because this has been my experience going back through the stuff that she's written in the in the early 30s, early and mid 30s. Oh. And she's seeing this two, three steps ahead of where anybody oh else gosh. almost in the world is seeing it, of where this is going to go and why this is a problem and why the United States needs to wake up. So I'm, I'm really, really thrilled to hear that, that Dorothy Thompson is going to be a part of this because yeah. she's such an impressive thinker in the way she's, she's going about things. So... Uh, that that's brilliant to hear. So I know we're, we're I can see the sands of the hourglass already running out now. And Tammy, I don't want to let you go before we. Uh, I ask a couple of questions that I try to ask just about everybody. Uh, what what are you reading that is helping you to think about this project and frame it, either in terms of a a model for writing or World War II stuff specifically? What books have been most influential for you? Yeah. Well, I mentioned James McPherson, Battle Cry of Freedom, American Civil War period. Yeah. Uh, that Oxford series is brilliant. Of course, David Kennedy's Freedom from Fear. I love David Kennedy's writing. He's he's fantastic. Anything by Michael Howard. You know, I just want to read it to get in the flow of the way that his his words just move across the page and inform us so eloquently. Um, and these are all writers who do or did did something similar to what you're trying to do. Take a big time period. Yeah. And boil it down. Yeah. Uh, David Kennedy in a very large book that covered the Depression in World War II, but uh, the others in in really pretty short books dealing with very big topics. They, yes, and I honestly, I I've, I don't know that I could ever walk in the shoes of of those giants that I've just mentioned. I, obviously, I'm going to make the best effort that I can. Well, but, I think you can. I'm oh. sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also. Very uh, intrigued by um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's No Ordinary Time, which is, again, so beautifully written, so interesting. Um, the way that she merges the personal and the larger scale, the, the big scope. She's on a giant canvas, but she can personalize it so much and make it so intimate. And she moves back and forth and does that so brilliantly. So as you're reading those books, are you doing what I sometimes try to do? I'll try to read through passages a second time to sort of almost break down how the writer is constructing his or her sentences and his or her paragraphs. Do you do, you do the same thing, try to analyze I really do. good writing? I do. Oh, my gosh, yes. It's so important. Again, we don't tend to do it unless we ask ourselves to. But I will look at Michael Howard or I will look at Alex Danchev, who I, whose writing I love. And I'll think, how did he do that? That's so amazing. Or I'll, I'll look at really brilliant fiction writers, Wallace Stegner or Edith Wharton, who can write a paragraph and literally take my breath away. It's so brilliant, so brilliantly done. And I'll think, oh, my gosh, how did that happen? How did they do that? So I think we only have time really for one more question, and, and it's one I like to ask writers because it's a problem that we all deal with. When you do have a moment of writer's block, what do you do to get yourself through or around that? What is your technique for doing that? Uh, make tea. Make tea. That's a <laughs> good answer. Tea. That's a good answer for someone who lived in the UK for a while, as Absolutely, you did. Absolutely, yes. Make tea. 
there's a ritual. I think we have to have rituals a little bit. We have to have things. I, I will. You have to find ways to make writing easier for yourself. Um, I would tell my students, you know, if you're scared of it, write it as a PowerPoint first, because you're used to that format. And then take it and turn it into narrative, or take a, a little piece of something that you know really well and write. Start there. Um, find ways to make it easier, and don't hold yourself to super high standards. Know that you can always go back and edit. Um, so I, I just if I can get something down on paper, I can make some tea. I can go back to it, and it'll be better the second time around. That's a great answer, and very classically uh, academic. Um, well, Tammy, I, I just can't tell you what a, what a thrill has been. Uh, listeners, we have been trying to make this happen for a very long time, and because of my schedule, Tammy's schedule, and even once or twice uh, the weather intervening, we just have not yet been able to do it. But um, let me leave it to you, Tammy, uh, for for uh, a last word. What um, what do you hope this book is going to do? What, if in, in your mind, what is a successful book for you? As a good teacher, I want to help Americans understand what it was like to live through this period, uh, the suffering that people endured, the trauma that they endured, the hard work that they endured, the fear that they got them themselves past and through, um, and the joy that they uh, experienced when they got to the end of it. Um, it was hard work. Uh, it was traumatic in many ways. We changed as a people. We changed dramatically as a people. And I'd like to capture some of that. Well, with that, let me uh, let you get back to your kettle of tea and your writing. I know I speak for everybody listening when I say that uh, we're really looking forward to this book. I know I can't wait to read it. Uh, and Tammy, thanks for taking some time out of your day to, to talk about the writing process. It was really a joy, Mike. Thank you so much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.